The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. LinkedIn presents. I'm Maura Ahrens-Mealy, and this is The Anxious Achiever, the show that looks at the intersection of mental health and work, and how we can all do both better. Have you ever been sitting in a meeting at work and everyone starts talking about the incredible, probably international vacation they all just took over holiday break? Or been at a networking event and everyone's bragging about their fraternity or sorority at their fancy college? Money is something that can really trigger anxiety and depression in many of us. But there's something else underlying our lives, and especially our work lives, that we don't like to talk about, especially here in the U.S. Class. Class is something that today's guest knows permeates every aspect of our life, especially our work lives. And yet, it's something we don't really acknowledge. Whether you're coming from a position of privilege, a more working-class background, or the elusive in-between, the so-called middle class. So like so many other taboos we like to get into on this show, today we're going to focus on class and how it impacts our work and our mental health with Jonathan Menhivar, who is a former public radio producer and now hosts the podcast Classy. The show has received rave reviews and it features episodes with titles like Are Rich People Bad? and Am I a Class Hole? which of course I love. Here's our conversation. But before we get started, I just wanted to let you know about an exciting live event I'll be hosting with the U.S. Surgeon General next week, January 11th. Check it out on my LinkedIn. I always joke that this show, because it's about mental health, also ends up being about like kind of everything, right? It's about family. It's about childhood. It's about money. It's about love. It's about ambition. And it's about work. And it seems to me that class is something that kind of does the same thing, right? It sort of exists in almost every situation, even if it's not obvious. Yeah. I mean, that's what we wanted the show to be. You know, like, I think class gets talked about when it gets talked about a lot in the media is sort of just like an economic thing, you know, people's feelings about the economy you know, can people afford to eat right now? Cost of living is so high, you know, housing, all of that kind of stuff. But it just touches all of these other things that come up all the time. It's coming up all of the time in all these other ways that are more subtle, harder to talk about. But we've thought like, God, this stuff makes you feel a kind of way. And if we can find a way to talk about that and have stories about it, I think people are really going to be into it. Give us an example of how class might come up in food, in a, just to get us oriented about how these things show up. For the longest time, I felt anxiety about going to nice restaurants. I just like, I would look at a menu and see a bunch of things that I didn't know what any of the things were and felt like, oh, I'm supposed to know what all of this is. You know, I didn't grow up going to those kinds of places. And my eyes would kind of 
glaze over and I'd go a little dizzy. Like it, it sounds kind of crazy to say <laughs> that it was that intense, but just like the words just sort of, sort of all start melding together. And I, I, I can't like concentrate and actually focus on like, wait, what do I want to eat? And if I don't know what something is like, just ask. Yeah. Right. I'm here to have a good time. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, but I, it's just like so much like anxiety and, and shame mm. built into that, I think. And I would Google stuff under the table, like even hiding from my wife that I didn't know some of these things. So yeah, it, it goes that way. And then for me, it also goes the other way of like, <laughs> I'm somebody who lives on the East Coast and lives like in a slightly fancy suburb of New York City and like work in the media. I'm, I'm part of like a, a certain intellectual class now. And there are times when I go home and the food that I ate growing up it's not food I am used to eating anymore. Or I'm just like, ugh, fried? Like, I'm going to feel gross. <laughs> like, is there, is, why is everything fried? I, I'm in this weird middle place where it, it works both ways. How is class different than wealth or being rich? I think class can be defined a bunch of different ways. The way we decided to define it for this show is that class isn't just the money that you have or the money that you don't have, but it's all of the other things that money gets you access to. The neighborhood that you live in, where you go to school, where you send your kids to school, what sort of activities or lessons you have access to. I mean, like I, I have a daughter who's an incredible musician. She's really into the drums. And part of that is because we can afford drum lessons, you know? Enrichment. Enrichment, enrichment, yeah, yeah. Which I, I did not have growing up. I played guitar. I asked my parents, can I have guitar lessons? They said, no, we can't afford that. <laughs> can you think of a time when you were in your early career when your class differential maybe of colleagues jumped out? Yeah, I mean, I, I think when it really hit me was when I worked at Fresh Air, Fresh Air was my first real radio job. Tell the audience why Fresh Air is a big deal. I mean, Fresh Air is a big deal because Terry Gross is a national treasure, first of all, <laughs> the host of Fresh Air and, and one of my bosses at the show. But no, I, I think it is a big deal and kind of in a class way, because for a certain class of people in this country, she is determining culture, mm -hmm. or at least some of what you're, you're going to be into, you know, she and her staff there are determining what books you should be reading, what movies you should see, what music you should be listening to, the way you should be thinking about the news, the questions you should be asking. She's not the ultimate gatekeeper for all those things, but her taste and the questions she has about all of those things determine the way a lot of people think or even like get access to, to hearing about those things, you know? I have to tell you, it was really funny. I sort of did this little heuristic in my own life. After I was listening to your show, I started mentally tracking the number of times people in my world would say, you know, I was listening to NPR this morning and there was this, or I was reading the New York Times this morning and there was this, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. 
It's interesting, of course, in our world, our atomized world, how class influences the media we access and the culture we access. Yeah. Which, yeah, of course, sure. is has vast outcomes outside of just media and culture. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, I, you know, it, it was there when I started working there. I had been putzing around in radio for a while. I was trying to figure out how to how to get in. I couldn't afford to do unpaid internships, which was at the time the way you you broke in. Mm -hmm. And so I don't know, I'd had some, I had done a couple of those, even though I could not afford them. And then I'd been like freelancing in public radio. So I, I would do like two or three stories a year, but I had never done a real job in radio. And that was, you know, that was a, a daily show. And so it became my kind of radio grad school. And there, it's a little meta, but like the the media access and knowledge that people had there was its own thing. You know, like everybody had, was into bluegrass. <laughs> people, people did know blue, bluegrass. <laughs> no offense still, to bluegrass. Yeah. I actually weirdly had access to bluegrass when I was growing up. Yeah, there was a period I was into it, I think, because I, I liked the mandolin. Anyhow, <laughs> but yeah, just, you know, like, I mean, I describe in, in that episode of the show that there was a, a moment when I saw somebody reading The New Yorker, and I had I didn't know what it was. And I had been around intellectual people, and I'd gone to college and stuff, but I think I was reading Harper's at the time. That's way more erudite than the New Yorker. Come on. I know. I know. I just didn't know about this. <laughs> but I was like, wait, am I supposed to be reading both of these? <laughs> Jesus. Yeah. It was just just like a, a kind of a feeling that like everybody seemed to know all the same stuff, all the same movies, you know. They not only knew and loved Scorsese, but, you know, like knew the cinematographer. Yes. So I want to dive. I mean, this is a show about mental health and work and, and, and also about anxiety, right? The anxieties that we carry. I'm curious what your own experience was with anxiety as you leapt into a pretty high pressure area of this new job life. How did anxiety show up for you around class? Around class. Yeah. I mean, I, I think the anxiety was just, I just tried to hide it all. Hmm. You know, I didn't talk to anyone about this thing I was experiencing. And in fact, you know, I don't think at the time that I could have named it because I think part of it was just like a thing that anybody experiences when they're at a new job and they don't know how to do things, you know? that kind of question of how much do I pretend like I know what I'm doing? And when is it okay to ask like, Hey, I've never done this before. Can you show me, <laughs> you know? Yeah. It wasn't really until years later that I, I realized that like, Oh, the kind of shutting down and just bad feeling I have around some of this stuff is, is a class thing is about where I came from it's the not saying anything to anyone, you know, it's the like, probably like literally putting my head down a little bit and just being like, okay, just, just fake it. You know, did you feel the pressure 
I've heard this from many people who feel different from the majority of their workplace. Did you feel that you had more to prove because you had gone to a state school, I guess a non-flagship state school? Right, right. Versus yeah. other people who had different backgrounds and had maybe felt like they had less to prove. Like, did you ever have those feelings? I think internally I did. College was not a thing that came up there. But I think all of the elements of my background of like going, I'm going to name Cal State Fullerton because it deserves to be a named school. So mm-hmm. yeah, tell us a little bit about your background. My parents are both immigrants from Latin American countries. My father's from El Salvador. My mother, she had an American father, but had a Mexican mother and was born in Mexico. They split up when I was really young, but they were both factory workers. Um, and I grew up mostly with my mom and my stepdad. He also worked at the same factory that my mom worked at. Mm. It was a, a paint and wallpaper factory. For a while, he was a truck driver there. My dad's had a lot of different jobs. He, for a large chunk of the time when I was growing up, he worked at a shower door factory. He's also worked for Amazon and Walmart in their distribution warehouses. I grew up in a a suburb of LA. And then when it came time to go to college, I asked my stepdad, like, are you, is there any way you guys would be able to help me out? He said, nope, you should join the army if you want money for college. And I was like, oh, okay. So, so I went to Cal State Fullerton because it was a it was a school I could commute to and I could pay for it myself. Mm-hmm. At the time, it was, I think, like tuition was $2,000 a semester. So I worked full time through college. I was working 40 hours a week. And then, like, there was at least one summer where I was working 70 hours a week in two jobs. Wow. Yeah. And then, and then, like, I knew in college that I heard this American life one day and knew, like, oh, that is the thing I want to do. But I had no idea how to get there and no one around to really ask, like, what is the thing that you do to do this? You know, in one of your interviews, you talked to Jarvis Cocker, uh-huh. the musician, and you talk about the creativity and the imagining when you're an outsider and you imagine what you want so badly. Yes. But it's not like you have the friend of a friend of a friend who can hook you up at NPR or mm-hmm. the music industry or whatever. But I was also amazed at the power of creativity and imagination in bringing things into reality. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like, how did you will this into reality? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think, yeah, like that episode, I really wanted to talk about the kind of fantasy, the power and trapping of fantasy a little bit, I think, of like knowing, okay, I am here. I want to do that thing. How do I get there? You know, it really feels like like looking up at a mountain and just being like, I think I got to just start walking. You know, <laughs> and not having the map, not having any idea what you're going to encounter, not knowing, like, wait a minute, like, it turns out this is actually 50 miles. And it was a very stupid idea to start walking. But 
I do think living in your head like that and, and imagining yourself as that person, there is a kind of power in all of that that can allow you to get over it and to kind of forget any feeling that you don't belong. But, you know, like I, I, I made a lot of mistakes. Like when I first started wanting to get into radio, <laughs> one of the first things I, I did was a friend and I took a trip to Vegas from LA and I put a cassette recorder on the dash of the car and just hit record and recorded the entire four hour drive to Las Vegas <laughs> thinking that something was going to happen. You know, it was going to be like this American life. Like it was going to be like this American life. Yeah. Yeah. That like somehow some combination of fear and loathing in Las Vegas and, and this American life would emerge from just hitting record and expecting something to happen. You know, like I didn't realize that like what was happening on the radio on this American life was journalism for one. I, I didn't know that that's what mm. you called it. I didn't really realize, even though. I could hear people asking questions in, on tape. I was so ignorant about how it all worked that I didn't understand. Like, no, that's what you do is it's like things only happen because you're asking people questions and prodding them. It's like you got to make all of that happen. So, yeah, I, I think <laughs> like the, the fantasy, I've described it as like the fantasy can get you in trouble. And for me, it, it never really resulted in, in any anything really serious you know when i was going to that mountain i didn't end up like starving and cold in the night but i did i did waste a lot of time doing things like that is that something that you don't think you would have done had you come from a background with more connections or resources i don't really know because that wasn't my path yeah <laughs> but I did see like once I actually got to some of those places that people had totally different paths to being there, that they, you know, had had those connections from either family or people that they knew in school and an ability to work those connections, you know. And then even I think like once I, I got to those places, you know, like in journalism, in radio journalism, the kind of shows I've worked at, spent a lot of time in, in editorial meetings, in story meetings. And I spent a lot of time in those meetings for many, many years being very quiet, just being like, what is this language that everybody here has? Like, there's just a certain way of talking about stories, about taking something in the news and having questions and trying to find a new way to talk about it and like find a character in a situation. And, and I would just like see people. And sometimes they were people who were younger than me, who like had less experience than me come in and just know how to do it right away. Just have a command of the room. And it took me forever to get, I think I have that now, <laughs> the 20 Hard odd years earned. in, you know, but it was, it, it was at least five years of like actually having these jobs before I had that. I think it's true, and there's data to support this, that when you have privilege, you're comfortable in certain spaces. You have an ease and a fluency of being. Mm -hmm. 
especially if you're among like-minded people, which a right. lot of the rooms that you go to when you come from certain circles are your kind of people. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Right? For sure. And yeah. I guess what's your advice for someone listening who feels that their class is making them different at work for owning the space that you actually have been invited to be a part of, even if you may feel like you haven't been invited? I think there's two things. I mean, a practical thing is to find someone you can trust, hmm. either in that workplace or some kind of mentor in your field, who you can ask those questions of, who you can say, like, because I, I think, again, this like took me years to realize it's okay to ask the questions <laughs> and to ask a lot of them. You know, you shouldn't know how to do a lot of jobs when you walk in the door. And a lot of them, you know, like when I worked at This American Life, there was an understanding that no matter where you came from, no matter what experience you had, it was going to take you at least a year to understand how to do that job. So places do understand that, I think. But it, it can be hard sometimes to figure out like, okay, but I can't be a total dummy. You know, I have to like know how to do some of this job. Otherwise, uh, they're going to be like, why, why did we hire this guy? Or as, or as you mentioned, having the ability to get out of your own head and away from your own shame in order to ask the questions. Yeah. I think having that person you can turn to is important. So you can ask your questions, but then also they're going to know questions that you don't even know to ask, you know, mm -hmm. like I, this is what I wish I would have done would, is that I wish I would have found a person and been like, I really feel like I don't know what I'm doing. You know, like here are the things I, I want to learn how to do. Mm. And also tell me what you think I should know what I should learn how to do. You know, <laughs> what are the things that I don't even know to ask? So that's one is finding that person mm -hmm. and they're out there like people, people want to help you. And then the other is, yeah, getting out of your head <laughs> because a lot of this for me, at least, I think for a lot of us is stuff that we are telling ourselves, you know, like it's weird that that fresh air episode where I'm like openly talking about all of these things, someone who worked on that staff, reached out to me afterwards. And she was like, I got to tell you, like, none of us had any idea that this was going on. And in fact, we thought you were like the most sophisticated person who'd ever walked in the door. Oh, how did you feel when she said that? I, I, yeah, I felt really nice. I felt really nice. I think it was because I was into clothes, you know, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I like to get dressed up. But in that conversation that I had with Terry on, on that episode, she had no idea any of this was going on, you know? Yeah. So I think it's both real. These inequities can be very real. And sometimes you need some help with that stuff. But also, I don't know what the percentage, how this breaks down. A lot of it is really kind of made up, you know? Mm. I spoke to a leader earlier this year who runs a nonprofit around mental health and well-being for hourly workers, especially retail workers, right? Mm -hmm. And it was interesting to learn from him and his work how much less freedom the hourly, high-churn retail workers he works with have 
to talk about how they're feeling at work. Right. There's not like regular meetings with your manager to check in. No. And it's not like, you know, when I'm working with young people at Google who have been so heavily recruited, right, that mm-hmm. their their sense of being the chosen one, if they don't feel it, I don't know why. <laughs> right? <laughs> right, right. They have so much entitlement to feel good at work. Yeah. And also a sense of that is even a thing. Yeah. That you should experience at work. Yeah. You know? I know, like, everyone in my life when I was growing up, it's just like, it's just a job. You you go there so you get money. Yeah. And there was no sense that, like, you would ever do a job so that and, and feel good about that work. Other than, like, a, a, a sense of personal, like, hey, I'm good at this thing. I feel like that's being too reductive. Yeah. I mean, I think self-efficacy and mastery and, I mean, that, that makes me think about ambition. Because mm-hmm. I haven't heard you talk about your ambition, but clearly you were very ambitious. It's so weird. I don't think of it that way at all. <laughs> I just, I think, again, I didn't know any better. I just was like, I heard This American Life and I was like, yeah, that makes sense. That's the thing I want to do. And in fact, like going a more traditional radio journalist route, going and working at my local station and becoming a reporter and like working my way up the chain at NPR or something, that seemed like way more ambitious and not for someone like me than going and telling silly stories at This American Life, you know, even even though like, come on, they're like, their bread and butter is very serious journalism. Yeah. I still don't feel like I'm an ambitious person. I, I just like have the things that I have wanted to do. And then I kind of didn't know how to do anything else. And so I just kept doing it. <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting. I want to talk about the concept of being a class hole. Th- mm-hmm. This was something that I found very amusing and, and also enlightening. And one of the things that you point out is that, and and I'm not going to, I don't, I'm not asking for any pity for privileged, wealthy people, but that we have some shame about being born entitled in this country. And we also have some shame about being, quote, poor. But we share this vision of the sort of hardworking, honest earning middle class. Mm-hmm. That feels like a narrative that we should all hew to, right? And so you have people who are like pretty wealthy saying, I'm just middle class. And you have the president talking about good paying middle class jobs. And you have this sort of idolizing of being middle class in this country. Yeah. yeah. When, when we, I don't even know what that means. And I'm curious why you think, why you think that is. I mean, yeah, we explore this in, in the first episode of the show and the middle class is this, like, there is a ways that the, the government defines what your class level is, you know, based on income and all of that. But, like, the middle class is so wide and can mean so much. We do have all these moral judgments on things that, you know, that's not me saying this, but, like, I, th- I think generally there is an, an impression of, like, if you're poor, there's, like, it's you've done something wrong, you know? There's it's like certain stigma of like laziness and lack of ambition or whatever attached to that. Maybe you're not smart or I don't know what. Like, and then 
if you're rich, that you don't deserve that. Well, but what if you're self-made rich? See, I don't think that's exactly true. I think we idealize people who we think are self-made rich, but we don't like people who were born with a silver spoon. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There is a, a way that there's something more moral about having made it, about working towards it. And, you know, I th- I mean, it's that thing that everyone says about why Donald Trump is appealing to so many people, even though he was born with a silver spoon in his mouth, there's a kind of way that his being makes people think like, oh, I could get that too. Yes. You know? But yeah, the, the middle class is I, I, like, I call it the Goldilocks class. You know, <laughs> it's, it's this place that we all want to strive to be, whether we're like, reaching up to say that we're there or hiding (laughs) some of what we have to pretend that we are more middle class. Yeah. Yeah. What's a class hole? Class hole is something, a term that my producer, Kristen Torres, came up with. And I don't know, we just wanted a, a, a way to talk about those moments when all this class stuff that we, we don't talk about comes up there are just those moments when you, you you're feeling that tension <laughs> of like there's something off in this moment and i think i'm in the wrong here mm-hmm. so for me like this comes up all the time like anytime anyone is trying to help me in any way like a, a, any kind of service so even just like getting a cup of coffee or like getting a food delivery, you know, I'm just like overly effusive because there's a power dynamic that's at play there. You know, like I don't work in a coffee shop. I have had those kinds of jobs, but I don't now. And I'm telling you, like, make me a cup of coffee, you know, (laughs) that, that feels wrong. You know, it's not wrong. Like that's, that's, that's how our economy functions. (laughs) But there is a, a power dynamic at play there. And so, yeah, we, we on the show explored this. We had a game where we invited the advice columnist, Ola Papi, JP Bramer, to come and help us like answer a bunch of listener questions and also all of my own questions about like, tell me, am I being a class hole here? <laughs> What's a way that someone might be a class hole at work, like in a meeting or in a conversation, like even in a casual, unconscious way? I mean, my pet peeve is talking about college. Huh. Talking about where you went to school and reminiscing about it, especially if there are other people who went to that same school and had that same experience. I I just think there's like a, a... an assumption when you are having that kind of conversation that everybody else has had that experience. You know, like I went to college, but I went to a commuter school and I didn't, I never lived in a dorm or anything. You know, I, I lived at home until I was a senior in college <laughs> or even just like talking about vacations. I think right. that, that comes up a lot. I mean, my God, in the pandemic, suddenly like all of this stuff was revealed, right? Because we could see into each other's houses. Mm-hmm. We could see that some of us could afford to up and leave our house somehow, that we were both like paying rent and also staying someplace by the water. I think what we discovered in, in talking about this on the show is just like, 
we are all going to do these things. You know, it just is uh, like the fact is it's that there are class differences between us and these things come up. And I think the best you can do is just to try and be aware, just to have an awareness of like, eh, you know, maybe somebody doesn't want to hear about my vacation to Japan. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, I'm Tomer Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were, we were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, we'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. And so, we had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. What about mental health? You have me reflecting, you know, in a lot of the conversations that I have, and I've actually been called out on it sometimes, that the mere existence of assuming that someone comes from a place where they have the language to talk about mental health, they may have been to therapy comfort with even psychological ideas and theories can be rooted in class and experience in your family of origin. And that that is something we now talk about at work. I mean, I will tell you, like, I, I come from a Latino background that, like, the first time I told my mom that I was going to a therapist, she, like, broke down crying and was like, oh, my God, what have I done? Just the idea that you could have some kind of assistance for the things we all deal with was just so, so foreign to her. And, and also it's like a, a damnation of her parenting somehow, which it wasn't. I, you know, <laughs> like people talking about their therapists at work is a huh. thing that for a long time, I was just like, God, what, what is it with all you people and uh, your therapist, you know? I mean, what? I like that stuff costs money too, you know? It assumes you have flexibility of time. Mm -hmm. It assumes you have budget. It assumes you have the resources to find therapists, right? Because until a few years ago, like it was very word of mouth to find a therapist. And even finding one, you know, it's a matter of like God calling around and interviewing people. And it's so hard. Yeah. Right. Advocating for yourself, feeling that you have the right to mm -hmm. demand something. Mm hmm. As I was listening to your show and thinking about class, and it's funny because, I mean, I, I think that in America, our discussions about class are always so different. But I was raised by two parents who were born, 
extremely working class. My dad was first generation, you know, but were total Anglophiles because that was super classy. Mm-hmm. Masterpiece theater and <laughs> reading Trollope and going to England. Like that was as high class in my family's books as you can get. And that's what my parents did for us. And of course, class is an obsession in England and in many places around the world, right? We're not raised to talk about it from day one in America. But I think what you're arguing is we should be. We should be and we are in doing some press early for the show. You know, we were kind of pitching the show saying like, hey, we're having conversations we should be having about class. And a reporter that I talked to from the LA Times told me, I actually think we're talking about class all the time. We just call it something else. You mm. know, we we say like, hey, where'd you go to school? Where Where do you live? Like, oh, do you rent? Are you a homeowner? What do you like to do? And all of these things, because class touches all of these things, we're talking about it all the time. I confess in the show that I feel guilty about being a homeowner because like when I was growing up, we we were renters my entire life. Talk about guilt. Guilt is something that comes up a lot. And I'm wondering what you learned about feeling guilty about perhaps leaving your class of origin, betraying your class of origin in a way, not staying true to it, and how how you think about that, what you learned about that. That is an age-old thing that a lot of people have have written about. Yep. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I remember reading like a short story in college that was all about this. So I think it's it's there because it's Sometimes like you are making choices, like I have made choices to live the kind of life that I live now. And in some ways, even though it's what my parents wanted for me, they wanted me to to have options. They, The thing they would say to me all the time is just like, go to school so you don't have to work like we do, you know, so you don't have to like punish your body. But in making those choices, it's also a rejection of the choices that they have made in their lives. Right. And so that feels bad. <laughs> you know, it feels it feels wrong. <laughs> the other thing, though, is just like so much of this, all of these class things, when you are not talking about it, you are bringing a lot of assumptions to it. I interviewed my dad for the show. You know, he's, he shows up in the first episode, but there's a whole other interview that I did that we didn't end up using where I was telling him like what the show is and like really what all my anxieties are, like my guilt over this house, very modest house, I want to say, because I feel guilty about it. I was going to say, why, why do you feel you have to say that? <laughs> <laughs> I was very interested to find out that like these class issues are not a thing for my father at all. Like he does not care. He doesn't think about it. He... I mean, he didn't use these words, but there was a little bit of just like, get over it, man. Like, why are you twisting yourself up over this? You know, it's not a real problem. But also like the way that we are different and the things that I want in life, you know, I think he can laugh about them a little bit. Like I was showing him my closet and I showed him, I was like, this, this button down shirt, I paid $70 for it. And like, he almost like fell on the floor I didn't tell him that it was actually, you know, sold at retail for $250 and I got it on sale for 70. But he was like, if that's what you want to spend your money on, fine, you know? 
he's got things he spends his money on. I guess in closing, I want to ask you who your work is for and what you want them to learn and reflect on as a result of it. In a narrow way, this show is for people who are in my circumstance, who were born into one class and shifted classes. I think there is a way that when you do that and and you like bump up against the borders of class, you you see it and feel it in a new intense way. And I think I wanted those people to know that other people experience it and also like a secret goal of the show the reason it's called classy is i i I wanted to say like hey you know you can be classy no matter what class you come from but it's also for everyone i think we are all judging ourselves up and down the class ladder like looking at the people around us and like trying to figure out where we belong and how we measure up. And I think I just, I, I wanted people to have an awareness of what other people around them might be going through too, you know? To your point that this stuff might not be important, it's so important. It's especially important in work and in leadership because we know that belonging is really a key ingredient to people mm-hmm. doing their best work. And that can be belonging because you like the people you work with at your retail job. And it can be belonging because you are part of a leadership development program at Goldman Sachs, right? It it, it doesn't matter. And I think that that's so important. So my real last question for you is this. What does someone like me, who has a lot of class privilege and is a manager, need to know about being less of a class hole and having more awareness? Like, how do we build that awareness in in a concrete way at work? I think just desiring that awareness is is a first step. In some ways, you're never going to know, you know, and it, it would be like a little offensive if you just tried to take like working class cultural <laughs> <laughs> lessons or something, you know, t- to try and understand like, oh, like really, really like explain to me what it's like to be you. I, I don't think you want to do that, you know, but just like an awareness that people aren't going to be coming from the same place you have come from and have the same experience and even like know how to talk about that, you know? So, so yeah, it really, it goes back to that thing I was saying earlier, asking people like I, I now I, I don't manage anyone directly, but I do run shows. And so when I start a project, I will sit down with the people who are going to work on that project with me. And I will also sit down separately with their manager and be like, okay, what are the skills that this person wants to work on? Also, what are the skills that I think that they should have or that we as a, a team think they should have that they don't even know they need right. to do this job well? I'm going to take away something practical, which is don't let your team at dinner, at a retreat, at a meeting go on about college or summer camp Yeah, or other identifiers that may have tremendous significance to them, because I don't want to take that away from people. You love your college. You love your summer camp. You love your lake house. That's great. But understanding the impact that that could have on someone else is important. Yeah. I mean, it's so hard, you know, like, right. like we said, it, it touches everything. And so like 
I can't talk about my life at all because it's going to like bring up all these things, you know? So I, I don't think it's not talking about it. I think it's just like, just being aware, you know, like maybe I, I, I will talk about like, yeah, I was on vacation last week, but I'm not going to like go like beat by beat on everything I did and all, all the, all the places I got to go and amazing food I got to eat or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Save that for Instagram. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> so everyone else can see it. That's where you shove it in people's faces. Yeah. <laughs> These things are thorny, right? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. Thanks so much, Jonathan. Thanks so much for having me. That's it for today. Our show is produced and edited by Mary Dew. Our assistant producer and sound engineer is Nick Krinko. Many thanks to the LinkedIn Presents family and to all our guests for sharing their stories. If you love the show, tell your friends. I would love you to leave a review because they really matter in helping the show get found. You could also follow us or subscribe. If you have a question for me or you want to submit an idea for the show, find me on LinkedIn where you can follow me, message me, I promise I'll write back, or subscribe to my newsletter for more from the Anxious Achiever world. Thanks for listening.